This episode of Everything Hurts is brought to you by Prolific. Prolific helps researchers find research participants on demand with a pool of 75,000 active participants in North America and Europe. Everything Hurts listeners who want to give online sampling a go can get $50 in free Prolific credit that they can use to recruit participants. Just go to prolific.co forward slash everything hurts. That's prolific.co forward slash everything hurts. If you want your, your research to have more impact in real life, then it should be robust, right? We cannot, we cannot base policy decisions or education or health or anything on research that's not robust. So it would be, it would be strange to not care about it. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo, and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University and a very special guest, Marika Schiffer, who is a senior editor at Nature Human Behavior. Thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's amazing. Now, I had a quick peek at your CV, and I've seen that in the course of your research, you've been everywhere. Uh, You started off in Germany, went to New Zealand, uh, off to the Netherlands, to the UK, to France, and finally back to Germany for your current role as a senior editor at Nature Human Behaviour. So, I was wondering how you actually found yourself in your current position as a senior editor. Um, Well, the short answer is Skype. The long answer is obviously a bit more interesting. (laughs) So um, I worked in the UK as a postdoc for four years, and then I had a a faculty position. I was a lecturer of psychology, folk psychology at a university in West London. Um, And that was in 2016, 2017. And I literally just saw a job ad to become an editor on on this new nature journal, which has just, just launched at the time. And I knew them because because NHB is Nature Human Behavior is obviously publishing in the domain in which I was working as a researcher, and I was quite impressed with what I saw at the time of the journal. Uh, and then I guess I knew I wasn't going to stay in academia forever, despite having a secure job. So uh, so I just took a plunge and and went um, and applied for the job, and unfortunately got it because it was an amazing decision. And then Skype happened. Uh, uh, um, Twitter. Sorry. Did I say it's not <laughs> Skype? Oh, that's such a common mistake. I'm so it's for me. It's not a common mistake for anyone uh, else in the world. It's, it's fine. Not only not only are the letters in the logo next to each other, but the typography is similar, and they use the same colours. And they're blue. Yeah, it's terrible. So I saw my jo- my I saw my job on Twitter. Oh. Uh, the job I now have. Yeah, I messed up the story, but that's, that is the story. Yeah, I saw a job announcement on Twitter and I just went for it. <laughs> now, a lot of academics have, would have ideas about what it's like being on the other side, being an editor. Um, considering that you've made the switch from, from full-time research to an editor, what surprised you the most when you made that role change? Um, well, I mean, it's hard to be surprised if you don't have any clear idea of what's coming on the other side, right? So <laughs> my first exposure to the job was in the interview, which I really enjoyed. But obviously, I, I, but I, it's not obvious, but I had never met an editor on a nature journal or any other nature journal before as part of my career. Um, 
so I, I didn't know much about the job. Um, so it's, it's hard to think about it in terms of surprise. I mean, I learned a lot uh, and I'm still continuing to learn, especially about disciplines that are not the disciplines I used to work in. Um, so I would say, I would say that that's not surprising but that's the biggest sort of that, that's what's broadening my mind most these days yeah because it's quite a broad range it's not just uh not just psychology because your your background is more in cognitive mm-hmm. psychology but um it's like economics and 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 sort of yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff kind of broadly around the idea of of human behavior um so yeah it's uh, i was having a look and um you, you publish a lot of stuff but um what is your now that you've sort of been been doing this for for a few years what's your day-to-day role as as a senior editor there yeah so we're working in a team of four editors and one chief editor um and the big biggest part of the job is actually handling the manuscript so our day-to-day consists of uh reading usually around three new submissions the work we've never seen before and making the initial editorial evaluation, uh, discussing it with team members um, and then making a decision whether to reject something um, or send it out to review. And then, of course, handling the review process, which is incredibly evolved because we check people's publication lists and CVs to make sure we find someone who doesn't have a conflict of interest and so on. So that's a big chunk of the job as well. And then obviously making the decisions when the reviews come back in. So these core manuscript tasks actually make up at least 60, but uh, in busy times, more 80% of our time. When, when is when is the busy time? Because I, I, I know that uh, manuscripts are heavily seasonal when it comes to different semesters. So pre- presumably, say Christmas Day would be quiet. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. So, yeah, so the Christmas crunch is absolutely real. People start submitting a lot towards the end of the year, and and it continues throughout the break. Um, or if you if you go on a break, <laughs> continue during the time. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, I think the others are more subtle, like. There would be grant deadlines in the UK and people would be more preoccupied with that or the sort of NIH grants in, in the US. So there's a little bit of that. Right. Um, uh, obviously, yeah. people go on holiday in summer, but, but um, Christmas is the big one. Is, is there ever a quiet time? Well, <laughs> not far so far. <laughs> so we are very busy. Um, I would say in like in in the heat of summer, it gets a bit quieter. But then it also gets harder to find people who want to review work because they're all on their well-deserved holiday trips. <laughs> you still have stuff to do. It's just a different right. type of thing. Now, one thing we've spoken about a lot on the show is is how we can change uh, research practices. And, of course, you can do this from, from the bottom up or you can do this from uh, f- from the top down. And, of course, both, both approaches are useful. Um, but in terms of the top-down approach, one of the key things that we've spoken about is that journals, uh, particularly uh, prestige journals, need to get on board with this type of stuff. And when uh, Nature Human Behaviour first came on the scene on your with, with your first issue, uh, it included an editorial on registered reports and uh, and the Manifesto for Reproducible Science, which is a fantastic paper from uh, Marcus Manafo, uh, Chris Chambers, and, and a whole bunch. I think I think Dorothy was on that as well, and a, and a bunch of other authors. Mm-hmm. You should mention it at this point, Dana, that at least two of those people have been guests on this podcast. So, 
put your put your COIs out there. So these are these are friends of the show. Um, and and you've got your more more, more recent um, editorial. Um, there's the, the tell it how it is editorial, which I loved because this was basically saying that um, that science um, doesn't necessarily have to be a clean story. That science can be messy, but it's more important in terms of reproducibility and in the long run that we actually tell the full story. So I think it's I think it's fantastic. Now, but uh, but you seem to be quite unique in the sense that a lot of journals or the majority of journals within sort of psychology and the biobehavioral sciences and psychiatry aren't really going down this path why has the why has your journal decided to, to to do this um i mean it's it's first of all i would say uh i i think science is getting better <laughs> i think uh, the grassroots campaigners such as yourself have been driving for change a lot and achieved a lot and i think also journals not just us have been course, working yeah. hard to improve publishing so um i don't think it's just us um I mean, you, you mentioned the manifesto. And as I said, I was a researcher at the time the manifesto came out. And it's something which inspired me to work for the journal. Oh, wow. Uh, so <laughs> I, share, I share your feelings there. Um, I think, a journal, so first of all, the journal has as one as of its missions to strengthen the reach and impact of human behavior research. So I'd say, uh, and I don't think this is contentious, if you want your, your research to have more impact in real life, then it should be robust, right? We cannot, we cannot base policy decisions or education or health or anything on research that's not robust. So it would be, mm. it would be strange to not care about it. Um, obviously, the journal was launched, um, so it started publishing 2017, um, after the big science paper on reproducibility and after quite a few of these publications had already come out and the discussion had already started. So it would have been a bit tone deaf to not even be aware of it. Um, and it's a core, it's a core element of founding a journal and creating a journal that it serves the community that's meant to publish in it. So it must be reflecting the community standards and interests. And I think uh, reproducibility and robustness are our core interests. Oh, you, yeah, this is it, that's some choir preaching going on here. We, yeah, I was just looking through the authors of that manifesto. Uh, you, you were right, Dan. Three, um, Brian and Dorothy and Chris. Yep, I, I, uh, so yeah, we should have Marcus on at some point in time. That'd be fun. Um, I just thinking that's something of a unique opportunity because people start new journals all the time. They generally don't do it under the Nature Masthead, but like a new Nature Masthead journal in 2017 obviously has a there, there's a certain pressure to. Well, you would you would hope that you'd look at what people were doing, what our standards and practices right now, and considering that we get a chance to form this in the image, but then also after that, form form this in the image of uh, people who are working in the field, but also people will immediately pay attention to it. It's a it's a nature group journal. It's a it's for for an. Opinions differ on the subject, but that it is consequential. We can't throw that away. It is immediately of consequence. So it's a really unusual opportunity. I mean, there are plenty of small journals that have 
the similar kinds of principles. And there are plenty of big journals that were started in about 1508 who presumably are not thinking along those lines at all. So I, I, it's possible. I, I, I can't it, comment on that. No, no, no. I'm not. No, no, no. That's perfectly okay. I'll do. I'll do all the slander. You, you just, you just, just don't, 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 don't worry about that. Um, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating idea to be able to put yourself in that position. So it was, is that was it was like a founding principle. Um, I mean, especially because uh, the, the issues issues like this were particular. I think there was a whole bunch of stuff published in 2016 in particular, so that must have literally been on everyone's mind. How do we do best practices starting our nature journal from scratch, releasing a first issue in 2017? And that's presumably how you got on the ground with registered reports in the first place. That as well. I mean, we we were the first journal in the family, the nature family, to have registered reports. Um, Are there more now? Pardon? Are there more nature journals that do registered reports? I don't keep up on things like that. Now there's so many of them that I can't keep track of them. Uh, we'll see what the future brings. Oh, okay. At the moment, hey. we're the one. I think it's actually uh, very powerful because I, when I speak to a lot of people about re registered reports, they're kind of like, uh, I don't know. And then I'm like, well, nature and behavior accepts it. And they're like, okay. So it sort of gives it's given it it's given the the no it's true it's given it so much more momentum that people are like it's not just some some journal no one no one's heard of um, but the fact that um, that your journal has actually taken it on and al almost from the very beginning I think I think back back uh, back in two thousand and seventeen there was only like sort of well under a hundred now there's over two hundred um, so it it makes it's making a, a massive difference um, to that that uh, that a nature journal is actually doing that it's fantastic yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it did have a sort of a signal ring character, but um, Chris is also from the, Chris Chambers has from the beginning been on our advisory board and obviously he helped us greatly in, in getting this off the ground. So it's, it's just invaluable to have that sort of input and advice if you're starting something new and then starting um, an article format that no one's really familiar with from, from anywhere else. Mm. Yeah. And I, I saw recently as well that um, there was a, a, an editorial on um, and on looking at um, data sharing. Um, I think it came out yesterday, in fact. Yesterday, um, yeah. About um, about the importance oh. of actually doing that, and and that's really interesting because a, a lot of people almost think about data sharing as an afterthought. And I do know there mm -hmm. is the the uh, is it called scientific data? There is a mm -hmm. yeah. So there there is that journal yeah. which is devoted specifically towards that. Um, but then there was an editorial which was actually talking about the importance of uh, okay, if you're doing, if you're going to be doing some some, some research, um, uh, actually putting your data on there is going to have immense value. Um, but particularly, I mean, I mean, I, I always look to the example of the U UK Biobank to think of the amount of papers that are coming out of this of this data set. It's 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 incredible. I, I think I see there's almost a preprint a day. That comes out from that. So mm. by having this public data set, it's an enormous, enormous good for society, an enormous good for um, for, for for science as well. So so the fact that the um that the journal is also promoting um the benefits of actually sharing your data, um, I think is um I think is 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 a, is a real plus. Yeah, there are three there are three closely related things. So scientific data uh, or data is just publishing data. Mm. Um, and then at the other end, you have articles, 
where you also make the data and code openly available, but still basically you're publishing your research, right? But you also have the data and code, which I think is extremely important and commendable. Um, and then between the two, more or less, are these uh, resources. This is the format we publish it in, which is basically, an, it, it's mostly about the data that you're making available and you're describing in the methods what the data is and what you can show with it. So in, in the editorial, we highlight to the confidence database, which is also an ongoing growing project. And uh, I think we also talk about an ECOG database, which we got to publish as a resource. And I mean, I, I entirely agree there. There is, there, there is great value in just publishing these data sets because they're not accessible to lots of people. So very few people do get to do ECOG because this depends on patients prior to surgery dedicating their time mm. to participating in research. That's just that's just the rare and uh, and very valuable uh, resource. So I think publishing these is a huge community effort if they're prepared in a way that other researchers then can use them. That sounds awesome, but uh, I still don't know what it is. What's ECOG? <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's um, it's electrocortical um, recording. So basically, it's Im it's implants on the brain, In which humans. which you measure neural yeah neural activity wow. prior to surgery. I'm sorry, I'm so I'm talk I'm reading so much neuroscience. It's really hard <laughs> to remember that not everyone's doing that all the time. No, 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 no. That's fine. That's that's the, so so basically it's, it's so for people who are not within uh, biophysical measurement it's not an eeg on the outside of the head where you're trying to make inferences about uh between this point and this point what is the shape of the squiggle these are recordings that are taken from the outside of the dura mater with uh, an electrode array that goes literally on the brain yeah n not everyone can do that in uh yeah in their garage or their their, their psychology lab that's um I've, I've honestly, I mean, I'm quite proud of the fact that I've handled every form of biophysical data that exists, but I've never even seen one being done up close. Yeah, that's it. Look, that's it. Yeah, I know. I, I know. It says I'm, I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to Google it while we're talking about it. Um, I'd add simply to that, I have used three different papers from scientific data and people say oh can we can we get uh can we get data to run this code that we wrote on uh how are we going to spin this up with this particular thing that we've got and we've started using the particular papers within the scientific data corpus as sort of test beds and it's it's not something that will ever result in a publication but if it i mean that could be happening but we all have our own work to do but the fact that it exists in the first place means that the publications can happen because it it means that i i trust my code if it works on data that already exists and being able to search it with a search bar that works the nature search bar actually works other journals cannot make that boost if you put terms in and you and you look for so whatever whoever's doing your it infrastructure deserves a bottle of whiskey this christmas because you can actually search for things you want to download and get them and then use them it is just yeah 
I probably probably half a dozen different times I've either used one of those papers or sent it to someone else. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who's making the good decisions about this out there. But I mean, that's something. It's something that we always wanted, especially within our. Used so well, to I'll be pass dance. it on to the chief editor. He'll yeah. be delighted. And oh, I, think, yeah. I think now yeah. more than ever. Tell him, tell him, tell him I like his moustache and he drives an appropriate car. Or I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's great. Really, it's very useful. And I think nowadays as well, it's, um, it's more than ever. It's, a, it's, it's a bonus to actually have this open data because people, a, a lot of students, um, the, the projects are shot. I, I've, I totally yeah. feel for the amount. Like I, I was just thinking back to imagine if I was doing my honors project or my postdoc or my PhD project right now. And knowing that potentially for the next six months, I could not collect data and everything would go back and this has a domino effect on jobs. It is just, oh, it's, it's unbelievable. So, having these open data sets, I mean, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, everyone's going to be doing meta-analysis now. That's fine. Um, everyone's going to be doing reviews, which is, which is okay. But I still think people don't appreciate the amount of good open data there is out there. So, if we actually have these open data sets um, that, that, that are published in, 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 these, in these journals, but also um, I think the, um, the, the Google data set search is amazing. You can find some, some, some pretty incredible stuff there. Um, there's a lot of stuff that people can, can, can work with um, when it comes to their journals. Um, now, one thing I want to talk about is that um, you, this, this, the stuff that you're doing at the journal is, 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 is pretty cutting edge when it comes to open science. But one thing I've noticed that you haven't done, that a few other journals have done, is this idea of publishing open reviews um, where the peer review comments, I think it's really interesting. Um, there, are, there are some journals particularly, um, I, I recently published a paper at, uh, at eLife and I think it's very mm. interesting that you can go back and you can see how the paper has evolved over time with the reviewers' comments. Sometimes the reviewers sign their, their reviews, which is fine. Uh, personally, I think that if you're tenured, you should do that, but if you're not, it's mm. up to you. Um, but regardless, to be able to actually see the review process, both from the editorial perspective and from the review perspective, is really illuminating. Is this something that you've considered at, uh, at Nature Human Behavior? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it's been like, it's my, my personal like pet project. Oh, wow. Always wanted us huh. to do it. Unfortunately, uh, not just us, quite a few uh, other nature research journals as well. We've started doing this um, towards the end of last year, which means that manuscripts that were submitted, I think it was the 1st of December, but uh, please don't quote me on this. I think 1st of December last year, they were submitted afterwards, research manuscripts, um, will have the peer review published unless the authors do not want that to happen. So we do allow authors to opt out of it. Um, so it, I think I think different journals, Nature Communications has been doing it for a long time. I know the eLife model and I like it a lot because you have the editorial voice in there as well. The BMJ is doing it. So different journals have been working on different ways of implementing it. And uh, what we've basically done is uh, that the reviewers, if they review, then their reviews will be part of the published peer review, provided the authors make that choice to publish mm. it all. Um, but authors can opt out. What we also do include are our letters. And I think that's really important for us because we take a lot of, we make very active decisions. So we take a lot of, we involve ourselves a lot in the process. 
and overrule reviewers or prioritize points or instruct authors to do specific experiments or not do specific experiments, which we think won't be fruitful. So we do affect the eventual outcome a lot. And so it's important that what we're doing is also in the published record, if you see what I mean. So if once these papers start coming out, and I hope the authors will uh, will decide to publish this record, you will have the editorial decision letters and the reviews to sort of follow through with the history of the paper. And I think it's I think it's brilliant because what the reviewers do is just so fundamental in making a paper what it is once it becomes accepted that it's just very important for everyone to see. And whether you sign it or not is entirely up to you. So, <laughs> mm. it does pres- presumably that's only for papers which are accepted. Yes, and I, I know exactly what you're thinking. Like, if we wanted to really go full transparency, <laughs> we would have to publish our rejection letters. But that, that's not what authors want. At least that's my assumption. Um, yeah, I, 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 <laughs> yes, I think that's a pretty safe assumption. But I would I, also I, be surprised if authors did it. <laughs> I'm not saying well, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah, but look, but pre- presumably anything that's published, I mean, it, it goes through because that you've just described a very involved uh, peer review process. You presumably have very good reviewers, and it's never just one. Uh, I was the only peer reviewer on a paper recently at a journal that will remain nameless. Um, and you have you have a, a, a paid editorial staff who is handling these all all of the the, the submissions and the reviews directly, which is gets, gives a lot of these things attention the attention that we all hope that they will get. Uh, and then you presumably do not let rogue reviewers run roughshod over things that they don't like or papers from someone that they met at a conference once and they're going, oh, I don't like his tie. It has Looney Tunes cartoons on it. I'll reject every paper he ever sends me. Pre- presumably none of that's happening. Um, but also, uh, so the, the the value for this is really like how how did it get to be where how did it get to be where it is because anyone who's successfully navigated it is coming out the other side of this very involved well handled process and then you said yes let's publish it um i'm far more interested as someone who comes from a, a long line of muckraking traditions in the reviews that happened to the papers that didn't make it um that's not to, not to say there's no value in the ones that did. It'd be very interesting to see the 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 difference in the comments between initial and final papers for work that's in this in like our collective areas. What what exactly was your research area? I mean, the the actual specifics of the research that you did. Just for context, I don't think we got into that at all. Yeah, so I work in. Um Mostly in cognitive neuroscience, um, and I worked on um, I worked on sort of reinforcement learning and like low level decision making tasks. Okay, in people or in people? Uh, yeah, yeah, mostly people. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> I'm having difficulty making decisions right now. It's almost like there's something going on in the world.
Welcome to 2020. It's the Methodological Terror Zone. As research progresses and we find out more about the best way to deploy the measurements that we take from the world, a series of concerns have arisen around whether or not data collected in survey platforms on the internet to do research is representative, ethical, and trustworthy. One company who is endeavoring to answer those specific questions, which are pretty good questions, is Prolific.co. Go to Prolific.co slash Everything Hurts and get $50 of free trial credit and pilot yourself a study. See what you can find. There's no risk except maybe, well, maybe the arse will fall straight out of your favorite hypothesis and you'll have to start thinking about what you're researching from scratch. Sorry about that, but disappointment can be more accurately yours and sooner and in a more trustworthy manner with Prolific.co, the exclusive supporter of the Everything Hurts podcast. Welcome back to Everything Hurts. For this episode, we are talking with Marika Schiffer, who is a senior editor at Nature Human Behaviour. Where is the best place to find you online? Would it be Twitter? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I do have one of those difficult hybrid Twitter profiles where I have some personal stuff, but try not to be too annoying because you know everyone's just wanting to read the signs, <laughs> and I do write quite a bit about uh, about the things we publish um, and so on. What, what I did want to talk about is um, I, I remember a, a few years ago I went to a, a conference. And this conference was uh, attached to uh, w- one of the more fancier psychiatry societies. And they had a, um, a seminar during the conference, which was how we evaluate or how we deal with your manuscripts. Mm-hmm. And obviously, this is quite popular because everyone wants to know, how do we get our paper in here? And mm-hmm. it w- this was eye-opening because a lot of the stuff that they shared I had no idea they were talking about these monthly quotas, which I don't necessarily agree with, and all these other factors that go into play when it comes to actually um, getting getting your paper into those journals. And I was gobsmacked because this is the type of information that you would only know if mm. you were in the know, if you were mates with the editor, or if you were at this conference. Um, and otherwise, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, but then I noticed um, what uh, Nature and Behaviour did uh, a few months ago, I believe, was um, you actually published a paper which was titled How We Evaluate Your Manuscripts <laughs> to make things like it's, 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 it's one thing to have the instructions to the authors, that's fine, but to actually have a, a little bit more of a sort of casual, I don't know if that's the right word, but a, a more, more of an explanation of how you actually go through things, that, that, that's really refreshing because it means that every single person who's submitting to the journal is more or less on an even playing field because they know how it all works. Can you walk us through how this actually happens? How do you evaluate a a typical manuscript that gets uh, submitted to your journal? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first I should say um, the reason for this editorial is precisely what you described. So we do give publishing talks where we convey exactly this information. Uh, The information in the editorial is basically the checklist we write internally to communicate about whether a manuscript is suitable for peer review or not. And for for the research manuscripts, that's all that goes into the decision. So we don't we actually don't look at how much have we already <laughs> sent to reviews. We don't have quotas and we don't look at the name. We look at these 
things. So obviously, yes, they are extremely important to communicate. Um, so yes, we we look at a number of things on a on a broad sort of scope level, which is whether the research question is of broad interest, whether the methods are sound to the degree that we can evaluate it, sort of the really nitty gritty of the methods is a reviewer question, um, whether there is an advance either in terms of new scientific insights, uh, new mechanistic insight, could, there could be a new mechanistic insight, but also whether it will provide an advance for policy making or health related measures or, you know, as, as we said in the beginning, the journal is very broad. So other factors come into play here and they will sometimes affect some disciplines more than others. So for cognitive psychology, I don't look much at policy related advance because often that's not there because it's never there and that's fine. So, mm. you know, it, you don't get a minus point or anything, but those, those can and uh, th those are always evaluated and they do come into play. Um, and then we look at sort of robustness. We look at whether something was pre-registered, which is always a good sign because inc it increases our trust in the work and so on. Um, we write short evaluations that touch upon these points, that summarize the work, and that contain a recommendation from us to our colleagues whether we would send this out to review or not. And typically, these are then shared. Um, so I handle most of cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience. One of my colleagues is sort of more psychiatry, um, social, affective neuroscience. So we have sort of neighboring areas and we share a lot of these circulations um, to give each other input and to make sure that it doesn't matter who of us gets your work, we would make the same decision, right? We always have to be fully aware of where we place the bar so that everyone would be doing the same thing. Otherwise, it'd be unfair if you know you know you got an editor who is <laughs> letting things through <laughs> or uh, barring things that others wouldn't. So even even at your most cur how does the most cursory desk rejection work? Just like a, a matter of purest curiosity. Also, I study terrible papers in some format, so I'm kind of curious. Say say you you get one from me and Dan. He's probably first author because this is a dreadful idea. Um, that's on the um the the, the psychology of uh, people who have more than seven cats. Um, and it's it's a genuinely terrible study with no control group and a small sample size, and um, it continually uses the phrase kitties rather than you know felis catus. How's how do you how do you reject our cat based paper? Well, I think breadth of interest would be a problem because even though this may possibly make um make the yellow press i don't think it's of broad scientific interest no yeah that that's probably why we wrote it actually so do, do you do you even bother discussing something that's really terrible or do you just put a big spike in it and send it back I away write short i know notes that explain my decision but i would not take an hour to make this decision you mean i mean you said the sample size is small and the topic is not of broad scientific interest so it that wouldn't be a very difficult decision yes it's the not majority even of, of papers yeah. looks different and does require thoughtful evaluation and difficult decisions. Right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's I've, I've I've been amazed previously that uh, people who have submitted to the fancier journals manage sometimes to get rejection in 
um, sometimes an hour, like really fast. So, I mean, that's. I mean, you could you could you could come with a negative cant to that, but my first thought is actually, well, someone's actually read it, someone's actually looked at it, and immediately judged that it's 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 actually getting seen straight away. Um, which is more impressive than the the sort of downside of ah well who 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 cares about that presumably um, so the, the to do that the latency must be it must be very short everything must be continuous have you ever woken up to an inbox of internal messages that is just sort of a tsunami of manuscripts has hit for no reason and now you've got to dig yourself out. <laughs> that happens. Um, and the consequence is that you have no time to do podcasts like this or conferences <laughs> or work on policy. You know, if what we have to do is do the manuscripts and do them well, right? As long as we do that, there is a journal. <laughs> but as soon as this is not overwhelming, and fortunately, usually it isn't entirely overwhelming, we have time to invest in other things. For example, think about changes the journal could make or where should we invest who should we talk to what should we know about what should we learn about so all of this which actually is like the a part that makes the job really amazing does have to be a second thought if you're overwhelmed with manuscripts because that's right that's the baseline what 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 would it? What would it like a heavy duty day where you it got to sort of four fifty five and you went? I need a triple scotch and soda and to sit in the dark for a while. What would a what would like a full on day for submissions be? So if I if, let's say I get five new manuscripts plus something back that from review and I have to invite reviewers, that's Ooh. very very intense. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk about like thinking about. Journals in general, not necessarily yours. Where do you see things going? Say in the next ten years, how how is how do you see journals? How, how they're going to change f- for the future? Because yeah. in in some ways they haven't really adapted, but in other ways they have. But where do you see things going within the next ten years? Yeah. I'm 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 terrible at making predictions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but I could never have predicted the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think um, I'm I'm really bad at this. I think. What will happen is definitely sort of a diversification of what we expect a publication to be like. I still think an article does achieve a lot. Like it, it explains a research question. It tells you where it tags on to, what it can inform. It motivates the research and so on. It reports about it. So I think articles actually do have a real value. But as we said before, sometimes the data is just there, the center, like the code and, and the data are just there to make the article transparent. But sometimes the data in itself can be worth publishing, even though it doesn't directly answer one question, but it can be used to answer so many other questions. So I think that's very important. Um, I think that it's really interesting to see where we go in terms of code, so especially in the disciplines where the research is an algorithm, right? Mm. which produces data um it's an interesting question to which degree there needs to be a paper around it or to which degree it is really about producing a simulation and so on as i said i'm terrible at predictions so i'm really bad at describing (laughs) it as well um but i think it it will diversify 
and um, yeah, and branch into different dom- domains. I don't know if you've seen it. We've had this big um, this big project last year where we had PhD students and early career researchers write about yeah, um, the publish uh, pub- <laughs> pressure to publish, publish or perish paradox problem issue, which is absolutely real. Um, and and there were some which mentioned that if they could get some accreditation for having developed code, which is something which definitely happens for many of us in the sorts of fields we're in, but which is invisible unless you also have a pub, uh, like a standard research publication. That's just a tra- it's a tragic waste, and it makes people look as if they hadn't done anything, even though mm. they've created something of great worth for the community, right? So, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. I think that's that's an important public, not publication, but like format of, <laughs> uh, yeah, publication unit, I think, maybe a good term. Is there a Nature and Behaviour podcast on the cards? Is this something that you've considered? Yeah, it would be great. I mean, th- that's the problem. We would have to stop doing it it's as soon as we had five manuscripts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, I mean, it, it, it hugs back to something you said. It's important for us as editors that we're seen as approachable and that people know they can talk to us because we, should, we shouldn't be in a system where only people who go to big conference where we happen to be can sort of, you know, ask us questions, like find out who we are and so on and so forth. So visibility uh, and creating low thresholds would be would be brilliant for us. Um, and, and podcasts are obviously amazing, but yeah, we'll have to see whether we can have <laughs> the resources. No, I'll have to stop you there. Other podcasts are amazing. We are proudly unprofessional and uninformed. Uh, that's, going, that's going on the T-shirts when Dan gets around to paying the graphic designer. The next edition of the T-shirts. And <laughs> I've also seen um, a few a few journals, um, I don't know how they're doing it, but a few journals are also doing um, uh, audio versions of their papers. I, I'm, I pr- mm. I'm pretty sure this is automated. And because um, well, I've, I've, I've done this for a few of my own papers. Uh, I'm just, like, just going to record the audio. Um, but, of course, the challenge is um, it's pretty dry reading out a method section or reading out a result section. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think, especially for review papers, review papers – are amazing or would be amazing. Um, editorials rev- and review papers would be amazing for uh, an audio version. But, of course, somebody has to do it. Somebody has to do the work. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. Well, right now we're at the stage where automation is good for accessibility. Um, it's You can do a pretty decent job. But, of course, there's nothing better than hearing the voice of the actual author. Um, but, of course, this this takes time. Um, but, uh, yeah. yeah, I think and a lot, a lot of people have, have, have suggested I, I would love it if I could actually listen to the papers that I'm reading rather than having that stack of papers that I never get through um, when I'm sort of commuting or washing the dishes to be able to do that. So, it's uh, – I don't know. That, that's on my yeah. sort of personal wish list, but it would- it's hard. It sounds cool, like especially for for reviews. I agree, but I think you would have to have it automated because you would be putting non-native speakers at a massive disadvantage. Yeah, right? oh, it's so true. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. These these things are always more complex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, w- when you when you speak to authors, um, or just sort of you know listening to what people are saying on Twitter. What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that authors do have when it comes to the the, the publishing process, either in general or, or your journal? Yeah, I, I thought about that. Um, there are a few things. So we try 
as best we can to never make it about who the author is. Obviously, we have to be very careful because everyone has implicit biases. And it'd be silly to say, you know, I'm unaffected by implicit biases. Mm. Um, so that that is a big thing. But telling us who you are in the expectation that that will give a positive outcome um, is, is not a good strategy. Um, <laughs> likewise, it also means you don't have to be afraid if you're like completely unknown, right? Because we will look at the work. Um, I think that's important. That's an important message. No, no, that's, I think that, sorry, I think that's a really great misconception because I mean, I've, I've read cover letters from, like, from occasionally from very fancy people who start their, their cover letter with, to whom it may concern, I am a very fancy man. I have been given much fanciness by my circumstances. I have brought the fanciness here to fancy with you. You should be grateful. Here is my paper. And you've literally just said, that doesn't work. You should stop that. <laughs> What about what about cover letters? Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, Dad. I wanted I wanted to get to fancy this for a second. What what about cover letters? In 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 a more general sense, do do they? Because I've I have tied myself in knots in the past over these. Is it supposed to be good? Is it supposed to be particularly well written? Do I care? Do they care? Or will they just pick out all the nouns and then go and read the paper? We always read the paper. Um, I think you can make it easier for us to understand how your paper fits our criteria by explaining it well in the cover letter. Mm. So that can be helpful, but we will always read the paper. So overstatements in the cover letter are tricky business psychologically because even though we will judge the paper, not the cover letter, we may be incredibly disappointed if it's not what's in the cover letter. Right. So I just think psychologically. Okay, <laughs> I would so caution you... against overselling the work. Got it. So you could put yourself at a, a substantial disadvantage and you walk in and you go, I've completely redefined the, the, the theory of cognitive neuroscience. And then when you fail to do that, it does look like that you're boosting. And that's Probably you're saying it, it's probably hard. You know that it's hard for you to get away from things like that because it has to be. It's just a human response to seeing someone who's going to over over prop it. Yeah. So if it re basically for all listeners, if it reads like one of Dan's Twitter threads about his own paper, don't put it in your cover letter. <laughs> those those Twitter threads are gold. I, I reviewed a paper, um, and during during the process, I um, the, the the cover letter had sort of snuck in. Typically, the reviewers don't see the cover letter. Now, this this researcher was from an institute, an institution in California. It starts with S, ends with Anford, and the the actual um, the letterhead. Just you donkey. They were from Stanford, and the letterhead took up. Like a third of the cover letter, just, just just so you just so you knew, just so you knew that that they were from Stanford, and I'm like, gee. And normally you wouldn't say that. I think it was actually included by accident. But now I, I want to quickly come back to this idea of knowing who the names of the researchers are. Um, I reviewed a paper for Nature and Behavior uh, last year, and it was a registered report, and I did not know the authors. They were doing something which was my expertise, and I had never heard of them. But the paper was amazing, 
or the, the, the actual, at least at the stage one, it was incredible. And by doing that, I think it actually, that's one thing I particularly like about registered reports is that it removes that bias. That it doesn't really matter what the results are, but the fact that these researchers proposed something that was super interesting um, in the context of the research question and the methods um, were, 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 were pretty good, at least after review, they were really good. It didn't matter who they were. The fact they were actually proposing something that was super interesting um, made it really valuable. And I, I think, and I, I may, may mention this before, but that is one of the main reasons why I like registered reports is that to some degree, it takes away this idea of who the researchers are. It doesn't matter. It's about if the research question is good and if the rationale is good, um, then, then, um, then, then hopefully it's going to be a good paper. So I, I, really, I really like that about the process. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, I, th- I think that should be true always. Like, we should never think about who the of authors course. are. But, yeah. uh, if we're yeah. all biased. I mean, yeah, yeah. We just, we have to be aware of it. So, to make it impact our decisions as little as possible. I thought one other thing I would like to mention about a common misconception. Um, mm. And that's that people think editors are looking for reasons to reject papers. No, no, and that's, that's fundamentally that's untrue. Reviews. That's grant reviews. No, <laughs> that's not editors. If we stop publishing, we stop being a journal. Right? <laughs> we really want to publish work. um we look we look for work to champion um and to to uh to see through the review process so um our attitude is different from what's sometimes cynically perceived yeah Yeah, going going by twitter you can uh (laughs) sorry that's that's definitely that's just grant reviewers really um they are and even then not in every context but yeah. Do people think that like every every editor is is sort of like out there with a lance trying to like cut them down at a first sort of hurdle? I don't know. I mean, I know people like first of all, obviously, if you do think that, then you wouldn't say that to an editor because <laughs> <laughs> that'd be weird. Yeah, um, but I know. I mean, many people a have a negative point. impression. And and that's understandable because it's it's a competitive environment. You get lots of rejections. You may come up with reasons that aren't the actual reasons because you don't have full insights. It's it's understandable. I just think the message is important that we do want to publish good work. We're not looking for reasons not to publish it. Yeah, so it's interesting. Like the most exclusive journal would be one that uh, if, if we should we should start. If you ever want a side project, once you're done with your five manuscripts on your one re-review, which is not the most exclusive journal in the world, called the like the the Journal of Infinite Rejection, where it's so hard to publish in it that nothing is ever actually published at all. It'll make everyone's job very easy, and because. It would be so unusual if something did get published that it would have the most marvelous impact factor for two years at least until the impact factor died. But isn't like if you publish something in the journal that's not meant to publish, you've done it wrong? Like wouldn't it be a very bad paper in that case? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Almost almost certainly. Like, like whatever that would be would be sort of inherently satirical. Like if someone sent you a paper that was on the uh, – the, the, uh, the, the 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 danger and misconceptions behind starting a satirical journal that would be the one that you'd publish straight away which would then be referred to in a variety of meta contexts and paradoxically get cited really well man that might be the worst idea i've had all week um well we um 
we, we like to ask our guests some uh, some quick fire questions. And so we, we, we want to ask you, what, what's something that you've changed your mind about in regards to scientific public uh, scientific publishing or just science in general over, over the past few years? Yeah. So one thing I dramatically changed my mind about coming from PhD to postdoc to lecturer to uh, editor was um, – well, first, the publish or perish thing. I think counting papers is a terrible way to um, evaluate anyone. But it's something I completely subscribe to as a PhD student. I found that completely natural and logical. I don't anymore. Um, I think I, I, I see very little sort of rancor and spite. I actually experience the review process typically like as, an, as a mediator, not someone who's immediately involved. That's quite constructive um so i i often it, people believe that others are out there to get them and that's certainly how i thought about it when i was a postdoc and felt sort of vulnerable in the system but that's not what i see so i i i've changed my mind on that as well mm. yeah i got some i got some medical journals you should submit to you might change it back uh I, I think as well, um, when when the reviews are published, people can also see kind of behind the scenes and how things how things actually are. Actually, one thing I did want to ask you: what percentage of authors, like ballpark, are, are agreeing to this? In now that you've started doing this, we don't know yet because the manuscripts hmm. aren't at that stage. Oh, so it's going to be at the end. At the end, you ask authors. Yeah, Got yeah, it. we oh. ask at the end. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Will you will you write a paper on that? An editorial? I would expect wow. that to be one. It's something we're sort of proud we're doing. So. Yeah, right, 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 right. Hopefully that data gets aggregated and published. That's a yeah. People pay attention to those. I mean, look, I can't. It's just, I know we're already into quickfire ridiculous questions, but something something interesting about NHB. I can't think of another journal. I, I can't think of any other journal. Where I actually remember the editorial, like look, an editor took a position, an edit, an editor took a position and said something about science more broadly, the journal in particular, or how they interact, and I actually went, oh, I remember that from six months ago. I remember that from a year ago. It's literally the only journal where. The editorials exist as important academic objects rather than a vehicle for providing the initial citations for everything that's published in the the journal. Um, yeah, I, okay, you get one very, very large point for that because I probably should have brought that up before now. It's like 50 minutes in. I go, did you know you're really great and I like your journal? Yeah, well done, James. Another quick fire question, Dan, before I wreck this completely. What is a, a book or, or a paper that you think everyone should yeah. read? I think you should read something from another discipline, but with a mindset of humility and curiosity. doesn't matter what it is, but pick a good paper from another mm -hmm. discipline um, and try to get really into it. I think uh, we're often either afraid we don't understand it or maybe take sort of a grandstand and think that's that's a boring question. But starting to read in different disciplines, I find, is very, very valuable. So I would recommend everyone did that. Yeah. 
We've, sp- we've spoken about the weird accuracy. Um, uh, Google Scholar now has recommendations. Meta has recommendations. So, although mm. this is making our job easier, it's also narrowing what we're potentially reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's kind of like why that's, that's, that's one reason why I like Twitter is that you see, like, I follow people from heaps of different disciplines, from like theology and like uh, archaeology and heaps of different stuff, um, you know, politics and economics. And you come across some really interesting stuff. Um, that is more or less how I came across this idea for, for synthetic data sets, which I've been rabbiting on about mm-hmm. for, for, for the past little while, is that this is something originally that's done in, in, um, in census data where people are looking at big sort of mm-hmm. – n- no one's really been doing this in psychology, but I came across this thing. It's somewhere in some paper, and I'm like, gee, that's interesting, and that's sort of set up a whole thing. But I, wouldn't, I would never have come across it. Um, if someone w- wasn't talking about it in a completely different discipline, and I think there are so many ideas that we can get. Um, I mean, look at this idea of, of equivalence testing. It kind of didn't exist in psychology until yeah. uh, until old mate Daniel Larkin started talking about it. But that, that was <laughs> that was from that was from a, a different area of, of pharmacology research. Now all of a sudden, everyone's doing equivalence testing, all because someone took the time to actually look at a different discipline. So no, I, I love that. That, that is a that, that's a that's a great idea. That's a very good idea. Well. Uh, Thanks for, for, for joining us on the show. Um, looking forward to, to all the cool stuff you'll be doing at the journal um, over the next few months and, uh, and years. And uh, no, it's, it's been great having a, having a look behind the curtain and, uh, and seeing how it's done uh, from, uh, from a senior editor. So uh, no, we, uh, we really appreciate uh, your, your time for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was, it was lovely. <laughs>